It is so hard to be told that you're not enough, isn't it? If we're honest, we often feel as though we are not enough, but to be told you're not enough is much harder. I was cut from the varsity tennis team at Douglas Freeman High School my senior year. Now, mind you, I had been part of the doubles team that had, in fact, won the state championship. But somehow, that didn't transfer into being in the singles lineup my senior year. Ouch. When I was admitted as an undergraduate student at the University of Virginia, I remember that as I rushed across the grounds to class at Cabell Hall trying to be on time, I imagined that my forehead was stamped with the words, waitlisted. Because you see, I had not been enough to receive the acceptance nod in April. And somehow I squeaked in to be enough by the end of June. And I knew that others saw that. And it made me wonder, do I even have the right to be here? Whenever one of my kids faced disappointment of their own sense of being not enough, I was never enough to be able to convince them that, in fact, they were. I could go on and on with dozens of not enoughs, moments and stories, and so could you. Those memories are closer to us than we want to admit. We don't want to even think about those, but they're there. Rejection is hard. Nobody wants to hear that even with our best efforts that we can't possibly make the cut. It's hard enough when we're trying to earn the approval of our peers. It's quite another when we're seeking to win the eternal approval of the one who made us, God himself. You and I no longer offer animal sacrifices to make ourselves right in God's eyes, but that does not mean that you and I don't throw other things at the altar to make a show of faith. We give to the church. We support ministries. We serve dinner at Pacific House. We lift a hammer at Pivot. We sponsor kids in other countries. We buy one in order to give one. We shop with a purpose. We make legitimate and significant sacrifices from hearts that really are filled with compassion and love for the benefit of others and not ourselves. But somehow we know and feel it's still not enough. We try. We try so hard. We keep doing all good things, hoping that God our Father will notice, only to realize that all good things are not necessarily all God things. And we are so very tired of the trying. We know that on our own, there is nothing we can do to gain the peace and contentment that comes from real acceptance and real relief from the guilt of our sin that we keep trying to run away from. So what do we do? For the last few weeks, we have looked at the letter to the Hebrews and have seen that the writer is intent on wanting the readers to know more than anything else that Christ is greater. Christ is greater than the evil one. Christ is greater than all the other priests. Christ is greater the greater covenant because he writes his new covenant, his love, he writes right on our hearts. 
Each week we have magnified, we have made large the words of this letter so that we might magnify and make large Jesus Christ so that we know that he alone is the only one who is worthy for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that he is in fact the Lord. I also hope that one of the things you have realized, which you really should realize every week, is that the words of the writer and the words of the preacher cannot possibly come close to capturing all that it means that Christ is indeed greater. This morning, we're going to do our best to follow the writer's line of thought and intention to see that Christ is indeed greater. And that means that what Jesus did for us on the cross, the sacrifice he made for his life so that we can have life that is both new and eternal, makes Christ himself the greater sacrifice. Why would that have been important for the Hebrew people to know? The author is writing to those who were, who were well grounded in the Old Covenant and its system of never-ending sacrifices. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem were well aware that the, that the sacrifices that they repeated over and over and over were not enough. So much so that they wove into their faith one of the holiest of days, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which many of you know our Jewish friends celebrated this weekend. It ended last night. The day was different than all others because they would come and confess and make sacrifice, asking God for forgiveness for their sins, but also to secure their names in the book of life for another year, knowing full well that they would have to do it again the next year. But the Day of Atonement was always meant to point to something that was to come, a much greater sacrifice. The writer addresses the Jewish believers to say, I have good news for you, really, really good news. You know that repetitive sacrifice thing you keep doing? It's done. It's over. It doesn't need to happen ever again because a once and for all time sacrifice has been made for your sake. And it was done by Jesus on the cross, and it's good for all time and for all eternity. What you have been hoping for, well, it's happened. It's happened. Just imagine, if you will, how that would have landed on the Jewish believers. All they have been striving for, all always seeking the perfect sacrifice to cover their not being enough, is over. It's done. So now the question for them would be, so how do you even begin to li live in the freedom of such a new life? And the writer has that same message for an intention for us today. Friends, you and I are not enough, and that is okay. It really is okay. Know that, hear that, hold on to that. Because the blood of the spotless Lamb of God has been freely shed on our behalf, and that is enough. It's more than enough. One sacrifice made by Jesus on our behalf for all time and all eternity. Can you even, even imagine the writer putting these thoughts on the parchment and then stopping to think about how best to say what Jesus has done? thinks about it, and then he goes back and he's scribing away. And then the thought comes, no, wait, I've already said that, but no, it bears repeating again and again and again because if they don't get it, they miss the whole thing. 
and will live their lives in the shadow of the old covenant, which will only mean certain spiritual death that will drive every part of their external lives. The writer is saying they've got to get this. Dear friends, brothers and sisters, we have got to get this. We have to. Because you see, we often get confused about why Jesus died. I want to assure you that Ann Roth and I did not talk about the two sermons today, but I really just felt like somebody say amen after what she said this morning because she, she got it all. We get confused about why Jesus died. We often get the love of God backwards. <laughs> Jesus did not die so that he could love you and me. We imagine that God saves us in order to love us. He cleans me up a bit, and then he puts his grace on me. That's not it at all. His love for me led him to the cross, not the other way around. The psalmist writes these words. He says, the Lord delights in me, and therefore he rescues me. God loves, and because of that, he saves. So what difference does that make? It means that Christ doesn't just love the saved me. He has fixed his love on me at my complete worst. So when I wonder, and I do wonder, does God really love me? All I need to do is look to the cross. And I look at Christ crucified and I say, yes, yes, God does love me. And I know that his sacrifice is greater and more than enough. So now what? What were the Hebrew believers supposed to do? And what are we to do with that? If you know the love of God. And if you recognize his sacrifice on the cross. For the sake of your sin. Then you will hear what follows. The writer's next words as invitations. And you can imagine him being excited saying. Hey look. Look this is what we get to do. And we get to do this together. He says, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us encourage one another. But if you have not recognized the love that God has for you, then you will hear those words as commands that are burdensome, and you really won't understand them at all. Let me read those first verses in that passage to you again. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It is impossible for us to overappreciate the impact of those words for these Jewish believers. The God they had worshipped and made sacrifices to the one who could only be found in the Holy of Holies and was so distant and removed was now close at hand. It's a new day. It's a new thing has happened. So now, draw near. Those two words are a phrase that the writer obviously loved. He was passionate about those. Across the whole letter of Hebrews, he says it seven times. Listen to three times where he says it. Chapter 4. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 7. He is able to save forever those 
who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who draws near to God must believe that he is, and said that he is a rewarder for those who seek him. Can't you just hear the writer saying, come on, come on, you now get to draw near. That we get to come up close right up to the throne to find all the help we need. That's what the new day means. He's saying that drawing near to God does not only take place in a church building. It is an invisible act of the heart. You, you can do it while standing absolutely still. You can do it when you're stalled in traffic. You can do it when you're lying in a hospital bed. Or you can even do it when you're sitting in a pew listening to a sermon. But how do we draw near? Do we hesitate? Do we clean ourselves up first? Are we timid? No, he says, we draw near with confidence. And here's what you need to know about that. Drawing near with confidence does not mean being complacent when we do. And it does not mean drawing near when we think it's convenient. And it does not mean that we draw near with a casual approach, a casual attitude. Drawing near to God is not our last resort. It's always the first one. And the real wonder is that what we find when we draw near is that we are accepted in him, we are helped by him, and we belong to him. Why is that important to me? I hope it's important to you. Because when I am discouraged, as I can be, when I am defeated by the sin that just won't go away, when I realize how hardened my heart is, even when I look at the cross, God's word reminds me that Christ is greater than all of that. I am helped by Christ today just as I am every single day. and In spite of all the things that are true of me, I belong to Christ. I draw near to him because he has drawn near to me. So then let us draw near by faith and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. One let us leads to another. When we draw near, we hold fast. When we hold fast, we draw near. So what is this hope that we're holding on to? It's the anticipation and the guarantee of everything that Jesus has promised for you and for me. It is not the power of positive or possibility thinking. It is a deep-seated assurance that comes from what God has done, and certainly not from anything I've ever done or hope to do. Does holding, holding fast to hope mean that we deny or even pretend that we don't have difficulties? Does it mean that we don't experience heartache? Does it mean that we don't have disappointments? No, not at all. The writer knew the believers well, and he knows us well. He knows that we experience those things just as they did. In Christ, we are not relieved from the storms. Oh, don't we wish we were. No, rather, Christ speaks peace to us as we hold fast to what we believe. We are holding fast to something that is sure because he is holding on to us. My hand, my grip 
is surrounded by his. And when we do hold fast to our hope, then we are able to speak to friends and neighbors who are in the middle of their own heartache. And we say, you know, I know something about that. I've been in that room. I've sat by that bed. And I know it's incredibly hard. But I also know someone who knows all of that. And if you will put all of your faith and trust in him, you will have what can only be described as an anchor for your soul, firm, secure, fastened to an immovable rock. So let us draw near by faith. Let us hold fast to our hope. And finally, verse 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Each week when we come together to begin, we begin with a call to worship. If you listen closely, you will recognize that it is not a personal invitation that is coming to you. It is our invitation to worship together. Listen to some of these words that we have ushered you into worship with. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. There's a danger, a grave danger, when we think that we can be Christians all by ourselves. The Christian faith was never meant to be lived in isolation. We worship God not just in private, but in public as well. We gather together as, as the Lord's people, not as a regulation or even as an obligation. We're family, and we have an elder brother, Jesus. And we get to come together and acknowledge and rejoice in what he has done. Why would you ever stay away? I speak boldly for the pastors when I say that we are so grateful for technology that allows for the streaming of the sermon each week on the internet so that when you're not able to physically be here, that you are still able to participate in a small part of our worship. But don't mistake streaming the sermons as a meaning that you have participated fully in worship. When you are viewing the sermon, you truly have a limited view and experience as to what is taking place here with us as we worship together. I know because I've done it when I've been away. I've looked. There really is something important, something intangible in the tangible that takes place with us as God's people called and gathered together at Stanwich Church in Greenwich and in Stanford, when we, re- when we are able to look at each other, greet one another, sing and pray together, come to the table together. There is something about our very physical presence here that stirs us in our faith together. Being here means that we are bound together for whatever comes. Being here for each other means that we're here for the long haul and all the more as we see the day approaching. Do you hear the writer's heart in that? His urgency? Those words offered are both a warning and an anticipation. Help each other get ready for the day. Since Christ has been the greater and final sacrifice, there is great joy that is set before us 
and no fear. He will fulfill his promise on that day when he returns and there will be no more tears, no more sorrow. On that day, we will no longer see in the mirror dimly, but we will see him face to face. We will know him fully just as we have been known by him fully. Did you hear? Did you see the familiar triad of words that are to guide our days until then? Faith, hope, love. Friends, we draw near by faith with a firm grip on hope. And that hope looks forward eagerly to what God promises to do for us. And so we stir each other with love to live freely and joyfully as those who lack nothing because Jesus is more than enough. Thanks be to God.